A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. A different drummer. And now, coming to you from dead center on your dial, welcome to Risk Parity Radio, where we explore alternatives in asset allocations for the do-it-yourself investor. Broadcasting to you now from the comfort of his easy chair, here is your host, Frank Vasquez. Thank you, Mary, and welcome to Risk Parity Radio. If you are new here and wonder what we are talking about, you may wish to go back and listen to some of the foundational episodes for this program. And those are episodes 1, 3, 5, 7, and 9. One of our listeners, Karen, has also reviewed the entire catalog and has additional recommendations as foundational episodes. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And Karen's recommendations are episodes 12, 14, 16, 19, 21, 56, and 82, in addition to the first five that I mentioned. Now, I realize women named Karen get a bad rap these days. But I assure you that all of our listeners are intelligent, thoughtful, and savvy. Yes! And don't forget that the host of this program is named after a hot dog. That's not an improvement. Lighten up, Francis. But now onward to episode 161 of Risk Parity Radio. Today on Risk Parity Radio, we have a special announcement. And our announcement is a brand new Risk Parity website. Yes! Welcome to Risk Parity Chronicles, which is already up at www.riskparitychronicles.com. And we'll put this in the show notes. Risk Parity Chronicles is a blog created by one of our listeners, Justin. That is the straight stuff, O Funkmaster. And it contains all of those things that you wanted me to do, but that I'm too lazy to do because I'm retired. Forget about it. So Risk Parity Chronicles has a blog, and it also has resources, including lots of the articles from the past 20 or 25 years about Risk Parity and its development as a methodology for investing. If you are new to this methodology, you can go over there and... Click on Get Started, and it'll fill you in on the basics. And if you're an old hand, there's another section called Dive Deeper, which has some of the best articles about risk parity over the past 20 years or so. Now, who is Justin? I will read to you from the About Me section of the website. And Justin writes, Hi, I'm Justin. I'm in my late 40s, married with two wonderful kids and a funny rescue dog named Lego. Originally from California, I now live in Japan, where I have now lived for almost two decades. In my day job, I am a middle school teacher of 8th grade humanities in a personal finance course. Plus, I have a side gig teaching investing at the high school level. I write this blog from the perspective of someone who is knowledgeable about investing and enough so to know there is much more to learn. While I'm definitely no professional, I do hope that what I am experienced with 
learning and teaching others will come through and that I can explain and convey sophisticated topics in an accessible way. Groovy, baby! For years, my colleagues at school have heard about my class teaching investments and followed with, I wish I had that class now. So this is, in a way, my attempt to help educate all on this one aspect of investing. No one can stop me. Well, thank you, Justin, for joining in and joining in in the spirit of the business model that we are working under here. I got this inkling. I got this idea for a business model. I just want to run it past you. Here's how it would work. You get a bunch of people around the world who are doing highly skilled work, but they're willing to do it for free and volunteer their time, 20, sometimes 30 hours a week. Oh, but but I'm not done. And then what they create, they give it away rather than sell it. It's going to be huge. A really big one here. And I have to say, your website looks a lot more attractive and accessible than mine does. I think I've improved on your methods a bit, too. And I'm hoping that we can work together in a collaborative way that will be useful to both my listeners and your readers. Yeah, baby, yeah! I will be happy to give you frequent shout-outs as you build out your content. Bow to your sensei. Bow to your sensei! But now back to our regularly scheduled programming here. Here I go once again with the email. And, first off, first off, we have an email from My Contact Info, and My Contact Info writes, Frank, I thought the comments from Fama in this recent article tie in well with the concepts you often discuss. Well, I was unable to access that article in the New York Times because it's behind a paywall, but I did find a little summary of it on another website, which I will link to in the show notes. And in the article, they are interviewing Professor Eugene Fama about what he thinks the effect of the war in Ukraine will have on markets. And his principal answer to most of the questions was, I don't know. (gasps) And they note, he spent six decades studying stock market prices, yet he is happy to admit that he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. Everything is proceeding as I have foreseen. Other comments he makes. He says it's Putin who's irrational. Everything that has transpired has done so according to my design. He says markets may be struggling to price securities due to uncertainties, but that does not mean the markets are irrational. The problem with pricing is a question of how much is knowable right now. How's this Russian thing going to work out? Who knows? A crystal ball can help you. It can guide you. Asked about whether he reads the analyses of Wall Street fund houses, he says, I don't read any of that. It's investment porn. A really big one here, which is huge. Asked about risk in equity markets? He says, there is always risk in the stock markets, always. It never goes away. People have to remember that. You can't handle the dogs and cats living together. Asked whether the Fed can bring inflation down without causing a recession. He says, I have no idea. Unfortunately, Milton Friedman, if he were alive today, wouldn't know either. He'd be shocked, really. He'd have to rethink everything. 
Asked how the Ukraine crisis will play out. He said, I've learned not to make predictions. Can't do it. Who knows? Forget about it. Well, that is quite consistent about what we think about the future here. Somebody says, well, why is that? We don't know. What do we know? You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. And it was gratifying to see he did not try to bring out a crystal ball wearing a cape or otherwise. You can't handle the crystal ball. I found that very entertaining, and thank you for that email. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Second off. Second off, we have an email from Spencer. And Spencer writes... Good afternoon, Frank. In episode 156, you stated that there are unfortunately no leveraged small cap value ETFs. I was under the impression that the ETF SAA was a two times leveraged small cap ETF. Am I off base on this? I've been utilizing it in an experimental leverage portfolio. It does appear to track with VIOV pretty nicely, although not as precise as UPRO tracks the S&P 500. I know you're a Seinfeld fan. Have you watched Curb Your Enthusiasm? Larry David could make for some nice drops. Anyway, great work as always, and thanks for giving us fellow lawyers a good name. I mean, it's terrible. This is just one of the worst things I've ever had in my life, I swear to God. Well, you're only slightly off base on this one, Spencer. SAA is indeed a leveraged small cap ETF, but it's not a leveraged small cap value ETF. So it's similar to TNA, which is also another small cap leveraged ETF, but TNA has more leverage in it. That being said, I don't have any qualms or comments about you using it in particular. It may be a very useful tool in your particular situation. Believe it or not, I don't watch too much TV these days, but I have seen a little bit of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and I would say it's splendid. You all say splendid all the time. You say splendid. They say splendid. Who doesn't say splendid in their life? No, we don't say splendid. We don't say splendid. I've never said splendid with them in my life. Nobody else says splendid. People say splendid at least twice a day. It is fact. And now I'm just wondering whether you work for the law firm of Igor, Gregor, and Bolvor. Let me ask you this, Gregor. Yes. Do you know Timor? Do you know Igor? <laughs> okay, I don't know. Who are, who are these people that I'm supposed to know? Igor from Prospor, Timor from Kukor. What am I, in the Colombo episode all of a sudden? And thank you for that email. Next off, we have an email from Satoshi. And Satoshi writes... Hi, Frank. Big fan. Your portfolios are very interesting. However, I find the safe and perpetual withdrawal rates a little high or over-optimistic. Did you backtest them in the worst periods possible, such as 1921 and 1966? Thanks. Well, this is an interesting question, and it's not as simple as it sounds. The first answer is that, no, I have not done it simply because I don't have a database that goes back that far or that contains the asset classes in a manner that allows testing of these things. But you can find other people that have attempted to do this with varying results. First, I'll refer you back to episode 40 of Risk Parity Radio, where we discussed an article by 
Big Earn McCracken, which is part of his Safe Withdrawal Rate series number 34, where he does a, an analysis of gold in a portfolio and, and concludes that the safe withdrawal rate of portfolios would be improved if they have 10 to 15% of gold in it. We're talking about basic, otherwise S&P 500, intermediate treasury bond portfolios. There's also a nice video on YouTube by Next Level Life, who is another person that analyzes a lot of portfolios. And he analyzed the Golden Butterfly portfolio in particular going back to 1927. And what he came up with was using kind of a modified data set. He got a safe withdrawal rate for the Golden Butterfly of 4.04% since 1927, with the worst period beginning in 1937. Now, he caveats this with the principal problem with trying to do this. This can only be done in a theoretical way, and the reason for that is because we are in a different currency regime since 1971. Prior to 1971, gold in particular was pegged to the U.S. dollar and therefore did not float in any meaningful way. This means you are almost treating gold as if it were cash and not giving it the kind of impact that it would have had or has had since 1970 on portfolios. The other problem with it is a legal problem. You couldn't own it legally between 1933 and about 1974, at least not in the United States. What you might have been able to invest in is gold miners, and that would be very interesting because during the beginning of the Great Depression, gold miners increased in value by about 500%. And so if you held a small allocation to home stake or some of the other miners at that time, it would have had a profound difference on the performance of your portfolio because you were essentially printing money in a deflationary environment. The next time this would have come into play in particular would have been towards the end of the 1950s and into the 1960s. Towards the end of the 1950s, gold stocks and gold miners had hit a low, and then they started increasing in value throughout the 1960s. And what was going on there is very important to know about. The Bretton Woods system that was established in 1944 that pegged gold to the dollar at about $35 an ounce was beginning to fail starting in about 1960. And so what happened was the central banks at that time, eight of them formed something that was called the London Gold Pool, where they hoarded a whole pile of gold to seek to keep the price down by selling into the market whenever the market price rose over the $35. So there was some artificial suppression going on there. And that essentially lasted until the thing fell apart in the late 1960s. And soon after that, Nixon closed the gold window and all the currencies began to float, as did the price of gold, which rocketed upward by about fivefold, I believe. Now, you can imagine in an alternative universe, that would not have happened all at once. There would have been this steady rise in the price of gold starting in about 1960. So I think there's an inherent problem with trying to apply an analysis of gold in portfolios prior to the 1970s. Because whatever you're doing is going to be artificial, either because the gold price wasn't floating or you weren't allowed to own gold at all. And then this turns into a very 
academic and theoretical exercise about what might have been if certain laws or monetary regimes did not exist. But I think fundamentally, you're probably asking the wrong question here. The question should not be what were the specific safe withdrawal rates for this kind of portfolio in this kind of period. The question should be whether they're better than alternatives. And we know that they are from the work of Big Earn and Next Level Life and others. If you have a more diversified portfolio that has more than just stocks, bonds, and cash in it, you are going to have better safe withdrawal rates. And that's regardless of any bucket strategies or any other current machinations you hear people talking about, because the math is the math when it comes down to it, analyzing a portfolio as a portfolio. So if you're worried about what the safe withdrawal rates are for these kind of portfolios, you should be even more worried if you're not holding one of these kind of portfolios, because you have a much bigger problem to deal with. We got a scary one for you this week. I think one of the best comparisons is to compare the length of the drawdown of a standard 60-40 portfolio compared to one of our risk parity style portfolios. And if you have that 60-40 portfolio, you should be prepared for a drawdown that might last 13 years, whereas the longest ones we've seen over the past 50 years for the risk parity style portfolios have only been three or four. And no, having five years worth of cash lying around in a bucket is not going to solve that problem. But thank you for that email. Last off. Last off, we have an email from Andre. And Andre writes, Dear Risk Parity Radio, thank you so much for this show. It is an island of frank talk and humor in a sea of marketing and fear. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. It's also been very helpful for me to think of future income as a low-risk annuity or cash. How should I account for inheritance? I'm not imagining a trust fund-level windfall, but before I retire, I can reasonably expect to inherit an estate of far more value than my current net worth, maybe even more than my eventual retirement as a whole. I know it's a fool's game calculating its future value with any precision, but it's a large, semi-developed agricultural property that will certainly not go to zero. Neither am I certain if I would sell it, rent it, or live on it. All options are on the table. We're about two-thirds the way to keep the lights on lean fi, 3% withdrawal rate, and still in the accumulation phase. I don't foresee living off investments alone for a couple of decades yet, so I don't want to go too conservative too early. How should we account for the reasonably assured windfall? P.S. I love the sound effects. Keep climbing your second mountain. We are all blessed by your new vocation. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. Well, Andre, this is an interesting question and reminds me of my legal career where I cross-examined a lot of experts about valuation issues. And there are many books written about how to value things depending on what they are and what the purpose is for them. So I will tell you, you would use a different valuation metric for this depending on whether you were going to sell it, rent it, or live on it. Because if you were going to sell it, you would just be looking at comparable property values around it. If you were going to rent it, you might model it as 
a series of cash flows, like you might model a business or a debt instrument, and then do a discounted cash flow analysis to figure out how much it's worth at a different time, say present day. If you were going to live on it, then it might only have the value of what the cost of your alternative living arrangement would have been, if you can wrap your head around that. Because in that case, you would get what is called imputed rent. You would be paying expenses on your property, but you wouldn't be paying rent to live somewhere else. So you would think about applying all three of those valuation methods to determine the value of this property. But the main problem you have is that you don't know when you're going to get possession of it. So you don't know what that valuation date is in the future. Now, the best way to do that is a little bit morbid. You whip out your Gompert's mortality curve, which is translated better into actuarial tables about when the person who currently owns it is likely to die. And you might use that as a valuation date, although it's going to change every year because the longer you live, the longer you're likely to live. But if you want to do a comprehensive analysis, that's what you do. You would identify an appropriate valuation date, then look at the three different use cases and do separate valuations for each one based on the principles that apply to that particular case. And then you would back it down into into today's dollars and you could give an estimate as to what it would be worth today. Honestly, I'm not sure it's worth doing all that work. Real wrath of God type stuff. The simplest way to put a number on it would be this. You would figure, well, I'm going to live on that instead of what I'm living on now. What are the expenses I'm going to save? Or what is this property I have now that I'm going to be able to sell? And use that as a proxy for the valuation. And there is your back of the envelope methodology. But thank you for that email. It gives me fond memories of wading through expert reports that valuing steel mills and gold mines and other industrial operations. Secondary latent personality displacement, oh great one, yes sir. (laughs) But now I see our signal is beginning to fade. We will pick up again this weekend with our weekly portfolio reviews of the seven sample portfolios you can find at www.riskperiodary.com on the portfolios page. If you have comments or questions for me, Please send them to frank at riskparityradio.com. That email is frank at riskparityradio.com. Or you can go to the website, www.riskparityradio.com, and put your message into the contact form there, and I'll get it that way. If you want to check out additional materials on risk parity investing, I suggest the blog Risk Parity Chronicles at www.riskparitychronicles.com, where you will find a wealth of resources. If you haven't had a chance to do it, please go to your favorite podcast provider and like, subscribe, give me some stars and a review. That would be great. Okay. Thank you once again for tuning in. This is Frank Vasquez with Risk Party Radio. Signing off.
The Risk Parity Radio Show is hosted by Frank Vasquez. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, investment, tax, or legal advice. Please consult with your own advisors before taking any actions based on any information you have heard here, making sure to take into account your own personal circumstances.